Uh, Wednesday night, we're gonna continue through Matthew. Why don't you turn to Matthew 27, where we are in our study through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And I'm gonna, as we often do, pull a small section from our upcoming Wednesday night study. And we, uh, on Wednesday night, we um, has, have seen now Jesus is on the cross. And such a, you know, some people call, you know, this section of the Bible, the holy of holies of the Bible. And it's really kind of true in the sense uh, that this is where Jesus died for the sins of the world. But it's also the holy of holies in maybe another way that I'd like to show you uh, why it might be called the holy of holies in, in another way as a perspective here. And it's just a small section here, verse 50. Matthew 27, verse 50. It says there, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now, when the centurion and they that were with him watched Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. I mean, these same guys that were spitting on him and saying, hey, if you saved others, he'll let him save himself. Well, had he saved himself, we would have all been doomed to hell. Thank the Lord, Jesus went to the cross, dying on the cross for our sins. And this is, this is such a key. In fact, of all the world's history, this is the most important, I would argue, second in all the world's history. One second when it says here, Jesus gave up the ghost, when Jesus officially died. And it changed the world forever. And that's why, you know, this, suddenly we have an Indiana Jones movie moment, you know, where graves are opening, earth's quaking, rocks are splitting open. Like this is radical. But of all the things I just told you, the most important and, and probably the biggest, most cataclysmic one is the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Well, Brett, I think the, the thriller moment in the cemetery would have been more interesting than the ripping of a curtain. Well, not, not if you know what the curtain really was all about. And was it just a little curtain, like a shower curtain? Well, actually this veil, this curtain in the temple was giant. Um, and this is such a, a key thing. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain or in two from top to bottom. A.T. Robin, Robertson uh, was an expert on these things. He wrote about the temple veil. Uh, uh, you know, they're in the Herod the Great era temple. Don't get this confused with the tabernacle. The tabernacle was that small tent that they carried around in the wilderness. And then of course, Solomon built this glorious temple. And then that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Um, and then uh, after that, 70 years later, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, the gang, they came and rebuilt and you know, uh, rebuilt Jerusalem, really. But including that, Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, and that's why it's called Zerubbabel's temple or the second temple period. Um, but Zerubbabel's temple was not impressive, nothing like Solomon's temple. Remember the old men were weeping, oh, it's not like the good old days, but the young men were like, but we got a temple. They were all worshiping and rejoicing. It was kind of a great story there. But... Um, after that, for centuries, that temple stood, Zerubbabel's temple. But Herod the Great was quite the builder. He built amazing things, Masada, uh, the Herodian. Uh, there's some things that Herod the Great built. He was a dastardly, weird tyrant, but he was really good at construction. 
And one of the things he tried to do was, um, you know, appease the Jews by saying, hey, I'm gonna do a little remodel, a little renovation of your Zerubbabel temple. And so he did, and it was amazing. Uh, It took 46 years for the remodel of the Jerusalem temple. Um, The doors that you'd open to go into the temple, they were 14 stories high. In fact, historically, um, scholars believe it was the tallest building in the world at that time. Uh, that was built there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So it was a very impressive temple. You'd walk in the doors of the temple if you were the priest, you'd walk in and you'd see the holy place. And in the holy place, of course, we've done studies on this, um, you know, the altar of incense right there kind of in the middle um, with the table of showbread and the, uh, the menorah or the candlestick there. Um, it was all part of the worship of the, of the Jewish law. But the backdrop there of the altar and the showbread and the candlestick was this big curtain that was covering the next room back. And that room, this was in the holy place. You go back further in and you're in the holy of holies. The holy of holies. Now, who would go into the holy of holies? Uh, Is that something you could go, a little tourist, uh, do like a walk and go through, you know, and check it out? No, you couldn't do that, lest you die. In fact, the Bible tells us if you did that, you you would die. Um, but this curtain that separates, A.T. Robinson writes, he says, the veil was most elaborately woven. Um, it was a fabric of 72 twisted plates of 24 threads each. The veil was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and it was 10 inches thick. Vincent tells us that it took 300 priests to put this veil in place. You might even call it a wall because it was so thick and heavy. 300 priests to carry this huge. Now, now this is Vince, uh, uh, Vincent, uh, who is a historian, also A.T. Robinson writes about these. But there are some arguments about how thick it was. The thinnest you'll ever hear from people that know what they're talking about is four inches, but some even go past the 10 inch. But, but most scholars believe it was like this because it was layer upon layer of material. It was this 10 inch thick, heavy, heavy curtain, 300 priests to hang it. And why would they put such a heavy curtain between the holy place and the holy place? Well, it was deadly. If you went in there, uh, you could die. And and you gotta read, you know, the scriptures tell us in Leviticus 16, verses two through four, it tells us that if the priest went in with the wrong situation, he'd kick the bucket in there. By the way, have you ever heard the story where they'd tie a rope around the priest's ankle? Because when he'd go in, if he he died, they'd hear the bells stop ringing and then they'd drag him out. Uh, I was taught that when I was a kid and I thought that's kind of cool. And in fact, there's, it's, it's been a story since medieval times. Um, in fact, there's even old drawings of the priest going in with a rope tied around his ankle. And, and in, in case he, and you look at that rope there, it's a nice heavy rope. You don't want that rope breaking on you if you're gonna drag him out there, you know. Uh, <laughs> but it's a great story. But as it turns out, it's a myth. I gotta tell you. Um, I, I used to teach this 20 years ago. I'd say, yeah, there was a rope tied around the, because you know, I'd been taught that for so many years. But upon further investigation, I have found that to be nowhere in anywhere. I've done some deep research on this, by the way. Um, and as it turns out, um, uh, it's only legend. Dr. W.E. Ninnally, a professor of Hebrew and early Judaism, um, reported this. The rope on the high priest is a legend that uh, it, has, it comes from obscure beginnings in the Middle Ages and keeps getting repeated. It cannot be found anywhere in the Bible, Apocrypha, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, um, Pseudopigrapha, the Talmud, Mishnah, or any other Jewish source, it's just not there. And uh, I have searched high and low myself and not found any of that. Um, so it's just a fun little legend. The reason I bring that out is not just to be, um, you know, 
saying, well, we know more than everybody else. But you know, the rope around the priest's ankle does mess up the picture of what's actually happening if you really think about it. Um, you know, dragging a dead body out of the, reminds me of a wedding I did once, by the way. Um, <laughs> I was doing this wedding, uh, years, this was years ago, um, and I was there and the, the groom and the bride and, and, and then the maid of honor was the bride's sister. And we're just doing this wedding. It was a hot Southern Oregon, you know, wedding. And we were out there in the stage, like a stage kind of like this, but um, uh, the stairs went down and everything. Well, just out of nowhere, the, the maid of honor just fainted and fell backward and tumbled head over heels down the stairs onto the floor. I'm like, oh no. Uh, I was like, what am I gonna do? Do I stop the wedding? And, and the bride just said, do not stop the wedding. <laughs> she said, my sister does this all the time. <laughs> I was like, and I didn't know what to do even after that. But then the father of the bride, who was also the father of the maid of honor, he kind of got this, you know, like, I got this, no problem. I was like, oh good, well, okay, he's got it. Well, here's how dad had it. He grabbed his daughter by the ankles and started dragging her out of the sanctuary. <laughs> I'm not kidding, her head's bouncing on the ground. I remember just, and, and her dress is kind of coming up over her head like this, and he's just dragging her out, you know? I was like, yeah, um, why did I tell you that story? Oh yeah, the priest, dragging the priest out of the, out of the holy holies if he kicked the bucket. It's a great myth, but it's not necessarily uh, what actually happened. Um, but why would the priest go into the temple? Why would he do that? Um, well, nobody could go in except for one day a year. The priest would go um, on the day there of Yom Kippur or the day of atonement. Well, why would he only go in once a year? Because that was what the Lord outlined in his word for the Jews um, on the day of atonement. Uh, they would go in, at, before the priest would do that, he'd have to go through all kinds of the ceremonial cleansings and sacrifices and make burnt offerings and take off his fancy garments. In fact, you know, um, this picture actually is more accurate in the sense that, the, you know, the, one of the rumors about the rope thing is that he had bells and pomegranates on the bottom of his robes. That's true, except for on the Day of Atonement. He would take those robes off and put on linen that was very simple, humble, um, and he would go in and it wasn't fancy priestly garments. It was just linen and he would go in. So that kind of ruins the rope thing too. Cause you, they say, you hear the bells stop jingling, start reeling them in, you know? It's like, oh, I think you kicked the bucket. That's not what happened. He would go in once a year. And even as this picture you, it tries to depict, um, the Ark of the Covenant was there and on the, on the lid there, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant or also called the mercy seat, um, they would sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat. And the Lord says, that is where I will meet with you uh, at, the, at the mercy seat. And the priest would come in once a year and meet with the Lord. And see how there's a depiction of a shininess over the, that, that's movie stuff. Not exactly. There was a visible, tangible presence of God that was perceived somehow, some way, we don't know. But the, the Hebrew people had a word for it. The word is kabod, kabod. And it means the visible, sensible, tangible, touchable presence of God was perceived when you'd walk in the Holy of Holies. Uh, was it a light? Was it you know, a presence or a, a smokiness or whatever? We don't know for sure. But it was something you could sense of God's presence there. Some of you might say, Brett, I've felt God's presence at times. You have, and there's a reason for that. It's the whole sermon I'm doing here. I'll tell you why here in a second. But the, this was the one place they could sense God's presence at the Ark of the Covenant. And, and um, it's because of the Kabod. Now, do you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines in battle? Uh, if you remember that story, uh, this poor woman has, gave birth to a child and she was so bummed because the Ark of the Covenant, which was a symbol of God's presence, 
the Kabod, was gone. So she named her son Ichabod, which means no Kabod. Ichabod means no glory, no presence of God. And it was a sad name. Later he starred in a movie called The Headless Horseman and all that stuff, but no, different, different story. Sorry, I'm crossing my stories. But Ichabod uh, was named that because no glory. And then eventually the, the ark would come back to Jerusalem. There's a whole nother story there. But it was a symbol of God's presence. So this Holy of Holies, very private, very concealed, one time a year on the Day of Atonement. Now you might say, okay, Brett, what's this day of atonement? Well, let's talk about the word atonement just for a second. Um, we need to establish that because it's kind of an important word and it's really an interesting word. It, it, it means um, uh, when your sins have been committed, you have been separated from God and there needs to be an atoning work that makes you get back to uh, unity or connection with God. So that's why a lot of times we say atonement sort of means at one to be once again, restored into good standing with God the Father, at one once again. Um, why do we need to be made at one with God? Well, that's the thing, sin separates you from God. So you and I have the need for atonement. Uh, by the way, uh, the word atonement in the Old Testament, for you linguistic people that like to study this stuff, do a word study on atonement in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, in the Greek version and the Hebrew version. It's kind of fascinating because in the Old Testament, the word atonement means to cover, maybe even more like to cover up. Brad, is that what happens when your sins? Well, in the Old Testament, in sort of a way, that's all they could hope for is their sins would be covered up. Um, you know, like if you're, if you were a kid and you were given the assignment to sweep the kitchen and you swept the kitchen and, and then when mom wasn't looking, you lifted the rug and swept all the stuff under the rug. I'm sure I never did that, but, um, I'm sure some of you guys did, but, uh, that's the old Testament version of atonement to be covered up. There's sin there that's being covered up. Um, and that was good, but it's far inferior to the new Testament word, that's actually used to talk about atonement. And that, that word is more defined as to completely take away. There's the sweep it under the rug or put it in a dustpan and take it out to the garbage to be remembered no more. That's more the New Testament use of this word. What changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, yes, I mean, this, this is where the word atonement is so important. Now, this idea of being separated and the, the, the day of atonement you have to understand what was happening. So the priest would go in after all the sacrifice and stuff, he'd go in there and, 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 and see the kabod and spend time in the Holy of Holies. But when he would emerge from the Holy of Holies out the big doors of the temple, he would then lift his hands. And by the way, the day of atonement was very somber. The first half of the day of atonement was very somber. People weren't partying down. They were just very somber and confessing their sins and making sacrifice for sins. Very somber, blood would flow down the Kidron Valley as they'd sacrifice lambs and bulls and rams uh, for their sins. The priest would then go in and everybody be hushed and quiet. But when the priest would come out of the Holy of Holies, he'd put his hands out and say, your sins are forgiven. And then the party started. <laughs> the Jews just celebrate from that point. The, the second half of the day of atonement was just nothing but fun and food and celebration because they knew their sins had been atoned for. That's why it's called Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And, and um, 
And all that to say, uh, this is where this idea of separation comes. In fact, I, I think this is such a key verse and that's why I mention it often because this is the whole story of humanity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, created humanity and then humanity sinned. And then what happened? Separation. Um, it's Isaiah 59 verse one and two that very clearly makes this distinction. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And this is the condition of humanity right here because we're all sinful, separated from God. So you and I have the need for atonement to once again be reunited, reconciled between you and God. That's what we're all really needing so desperately. And that's what this is talking about. So this is interesting to me because you've got this um, big event that happened when Jesus died on the cross and people that don't really know the Old Testament or the whole significance of this, they miss a nuance here that's so powerful and I want, I want us to see it. So what happens? This earthquake happens. Josephus writes that it was a very large earthquake uh, 40 years, around 40 years before the temple was destroyed. That, that's when Josephus. So he, he says somewhere around 30 AD, Josephus, the ancient historian from the first century, talks about an earthquake, probably the same one. Um, so, you know, practically you got dead people rising, earthquaking, rock splitting, but spiritually, what's going on with this tearing of this temple veil and suddenly the Holy of Holies? Do you realize how scary that would have been for a Jewish dude standing in the temple? Can you imagine if you're one of the priests sweeping out the holy place, you know, and all of a sudden earthquakes, you're like, oh, that's bad. And then, then the, the holy of holy veil rips and you're looking at, at the holy of holies and you're thinking you're gonna die because you have no business seeing that. You're not the high priest. And, and that, that you might think, We're, I'm toast, but, but, he, but he doesn't die. We know that, why? Well, something big was happening. This is a huge deal that the veil of the Holy of Holies, the only the high priest could go in, only he could see atonement for sins for the whole people and just for the Jews. Very limited, once, once a year, every year for the Jews. But see, when the veil was ripped, something changed. And this is where um, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And, and we look to the greatest commentary on, in the New Testament on Jewish things like temple stuff and high priests and veils and all that stuff. You learn about that in the book of Hebrews. That's why a lot of us Gentiles, when you read the book of Hebrews, unless you're familiar with the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews might be a little bit difficult for you. Uh, Hebrews comes to life though, when you realize what the Old Testament's all about. And it applies to not only the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. So would you join me in going to the great commentary on this? Hebrews chapter nine and 10 tell us all about this and gives us sort of the reason why the veil was ripped. And what's the whole point of all this? Well, in Hebrews chapter nine, the author of Hebrews, which we don't know for sure who that is. I believe it was Paul the apostle personally. Um, but whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, um, uh, he makes the argument that Jesus Christ is our high priest. For the Jews, it was the sons of Aaron, one, one guy who was the high priest. But now, for not just the Jews, but for everyone, Jesus is our high priest. Let's take a look. It's chapter nine, we'll start, in, and I'm gonna bounce around here, by the way. Uh, uh, it's tempting to read the whole thing, but then we'd have a horrible traffic jam between the second, first and second service this morning. <laughs> so Hebrews 9, 11. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come 
by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now this, this is such a key. What is he saying? There's a better new kind of way. No longer is it the high priest in the temple. That's an inferior temple. See, Jesus Christ is our high priest and he did his day of atonement work, but he did it once. He didn't have to do it over and over again like the old days. He did it once and it's more than just Israel, but he did this for the whole world, including you and me, Gentiles. When it says it was a more perfect tabernacle, what, what would that be referring to? What's the more perfect tabernacle um, than the, the temple or the tabernacle of the Old Testament? Well, as it turns out, we know, um, Paul says, what, don't you know your body's a temple or even like a dwelling place, tabernacle? But more importantly, the best one was Jesus himself. That's why we talk about this as a more perfect tabernacle. That's Jesus, not made with hands. That is to say, not this building. So Jesus is the better high priest who is, in a sense, he is sort of better than the temple, more perfect temple. And Christ, what does he do? He fulfills the Old Testament law perfectly. Um, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. Um, and, and this is an important way to look at this. You, you see, the Jews up to this point thought, well, if we want our sins swept under the rug, we better do the temple practice, sacrifice bulls, rams, and goats, blood, and once a year, hopefully the Day of Atonement works, and if the priest comes out, at least we're good for another year, but here's hoping next year. That's kind of the way it was. But when that high priest would emerge, they would say their sins are forgiven. What, what's, what's the deal with Jesus? Jesus is our high priest who's gonna do this one time for the whole world, and he's gonna emerge from the tomb, and he's gonna say your sins are forgiven. Um, when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved that it all worked. It was kind of like what happened when the high priest was, you know, is he gonna die in there? And then when he comes out, he says, your sins are forgiven. Which raises an interesting question. Should you and I celebrate Yom Kippur? Why don't Christians celebrate Yom Kippur? Well, um, the funny thing is, I think most Christians don't celebrate Yom Kippur because they could care less. Um, but if you take a pretty careful read of the Bible, your first impression might be, well, maybe we should celebrate Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. Until you do a deeper read still, and then you realize, wow, because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the Day of Atonement, we don't have to do uh, this act that they did in, in, in Judaism. Um, and by the way, that's true of all those things. In fact, um, as, as we look at it further still, um, check out uh, chapter 10. He goes on and talks about this further. Hebrews chapter 10, verse one. It says, for the law, having a shadow of good things. Now, would you mark, if you're a Bible marker, the word shadow, that's a real key. Um, what is this? The law is a shadow, this is important, of good things to come and not the very image of the things. In other words, it's not literally the thing, but it's a shadow of the thing. Um, that's coming. And it can never, with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make the comers there too perfect. In other words, the Day of Atonement, they'd come, it's, it, it didn't really do the trick, but it was a shadow of what was to come. The Old Testament sacrifices and the lambs, bulls, and rams, the temple, the curtain, the Holy of Holies, the priests going in and out, just a shadow of 
really good stuff that's coming. And the Jews were looking sort of forward to whether they knew it or not, to God ultimately reconciling humanity to himself through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the Messiah, the savior of the world. Um, this, this is where, um, have you ever seen like some of these churches that lean back into Judaism and they, they feel like somehow they're more spiritual by you know, celebrating a Jewish Seder dinner or Passover or uh, you know, celebrating the feasts and the festivals. Now, I gotta be careful here because there's good Christian people who do these things because it's fun and it's uh, instructional and it's good to learn about the Old Testament. But if there's a tinge of, well, we're a little more spiritual because we keep the Passover. <clears throat> that's wrong. If they're kind of letting their prayer tassels sort of hang out of, under their garment, just a little bit to let, let you know, I'm a little more spiritual than you are because I got my prayer tassels. Um, have you guys met people like this? Some of the Messianic churches <clears throat> lean into that a little too much, if you ask me. Um, there's good Messianic churches, but a lot of them tend to kind of put this thing where you got to get back in. And Paul talks about that all throughout the New Testament. You know, don't go back to that stuff. Uh, you, you can do it just as, as study and, and even looking at what they did in the Old Testament, but if you're doing it to, to reconcile yourself or be saved or anything like that, you've missed the mark on that. Um, that's why he says um, those sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were never, they can never with those sacrifices um, you know, be made perfect by that. Look at verse two as it goes on there in verse 10, chapter 10, verse two, then... For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, wouldn't they stop doing the Day of Atonement if it worked perfectly? Um, because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a, remaining, uh, a remembrance, again, made of sins every year. For, verse four, for it is, impossible, it is, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. This is a big bit of news for the, um, the Jews. Can you imagine, man, we've been for thousands of years celebrating you know, Yom Kippur and sacrificing bulls and goats. Um, why does it say that bulls and goats never took away sin? Well, it never did. It swept it under the rug. Atonement in the Old Testament sense. It was sort of a shadow of coming attractions. Um, but, but here's what it says. Um, notice the word take away in verse four. But the bull, the blood of bulls and goats should not really take away sin. That's what you and I need. That's what the Jews of the Old Testament need is to have their sins not you know, covered, but have them totally taken away. How's that gonna happen? Well, we read on, the author of Hebrews uh, talks about this. By the way, the shadow idea, um, when I talk about those who would lay a trip on you and say, well, you gotta, feed, you gotta fast on certain days and you've gotta remember and keep all the holy days and the, uh, the new moons and the Sabbaths and, and all that stuff, you gotta do all that. Well, the, this is where Paul says, that's wrong. And I, I need you to remember this. If you have people lay that trip on you, just show them Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Paul warned about these Judaizers uh, trying to Judaize everybody. And he says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. The shadow is the Old Testament law, but the real deal is Jesus Christ in his literal body being a sacrifice for the sins of the world. 
Um, how would you dads feel if you get home from work, I'm home, and the kids come running out and they, they go and you get ready to hug your kids and greet them and they run and then they fall down and start kissing and hugging your shadow on the, on the pavement out on your garage apron. Um, you're like, kids, get up, I'm right here. Oh no, dad, you're right here. And they're patting your shadow and saying, oh, we're so happy to see you. And they're giving all their attention and affection to the shadow. You'd be saying, okay, I need to take my kids to the doctor. Uh, there's something wrong with them. Um, yeah, exactly. That's just a shadow. The Old Testament is a picture book uh, of pictures or shadows of future things. So everything about the lambs being sacrificed on altars and the veil of the temple and all this stuff, it's all about Jesus. Do you remember when I always say, the Bible says, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. Where's that talked about? Right here, Hebrews. Let's, 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 and, and so keep that in mind, the shadow. It's the shadow of things to come. That's an important image that we're given here. But if we move forward in Hebrews 10, verse six, uh, it says, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. To do thy will, O God, Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God, for he taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Oh, I've got that marked in my Bible. Once for all. That's such good news. No longer year after year, hoping the day of atonement would stick, hoping that it would just sort of sweep our sins under the rug. But instead, we have a doing away with the first, verse nine, that's the law. Um, there's no longer a need for us to try to keep the law. Um, he, he taketh away the first that he may establish the second. You might say old covenant is the first, new covenant is the, is the second. Um, remember when Jesus broke the bread and gave the wine there at the Last Supper? He said, this is a new covenant or new testament. Um, Jeremiah talks about the new covenant that was coming and no longer would be a law of the Jews that would, you know, we'd have to try to keep, but he'd write it on the table of men's hearts what to do. Totally different deal. And this is what's happening here. So here's a question that you might wanna think about. Did anybody ever get saved from the fires of hell by sacrificing animals in the Old Testament? Right here, we read, nope, that was just a shadow of things to come. Question, how then does a guy like Abraham uh, get saved or any of the Old Testament Jews if they were sacrificing and doing an offering and all that stuff, how would they, if, they, if that didn't save them from their sins, question, how would they get saved then? What would be the means or the method of their salvation? Anybody wanna take a stab at that? Yeah, by faith. Abraham believed God and so it was counted unto him for righteousness. Okay, but wait, Brett, that's great. I understand that. But the book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And you're saying the blood of the bulls, rams, and groats really didn't do the trick. So question, by whose blood did Abraham get saved by? Anybody? Jesus. Jesus died once for all. And all in the Greek means all. 
<laughs> it's, it's just all, everybody. Uh, anybody who's saved throughout all the world's history, Jesus died on the cross, that's marked in my Bible, verse 10, uh, by the, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, sanctified, were sanctified, meaning set apart. Now, this is such good news because if you look forward, uh, dying once for all, look at verse 14 as we jump through this. You might wanna read these whole chapters here because they're pretty rich. Uh, you don't wanna miss all this, but verse 14, for by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So if you are sanctified, set apart. Now, this is where we could, if we had time, dive into them. We've, we, we have talked about divine election, predestination, uh, adoption, some of those doctors about were you chosen or did God, did God choose you or did you choose to be saved? And the answer in my opinion to that is yes. Uh, we have a false dilemma. People try to put God in a box, say are you this or are you that? But um, I believe you choose, but I also believe God already chose you if you are chosen. Well, how do you know if God chose you? We can try it right now. If you're willing to get saved and repent of your sins, then we know God chose you. Uh, let's, let's see. I don't want to do that. Well, then he probably didn't choose you. Like, I, I really believe that. I mean, it's, it's a funny thing because I, I don't believe God's limited to our time, space, and laws of physics. Um, but people try to cram it all in there with their Arminian or Calvinistic views. Um, I'm a Calvinist. Uh, some people say, Brett, you're a Calvinist. Uh, you know, people, people act, ask about that. And, and I love talking and even debating about Calvinism versus Arminianism because it's really hilarious to me. I can show you scriptures that defends Calvinism, but I can also show you scriptures that defends, well, you made a free will choice to accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. God is sovereign, but you also still made a choice. The Bible's clear on that, but people like to put it all in a nice, neat package. I think that's a mistake. I'm, I'm, that's one of the ways I approach the Bible, by the way. Uh, I think you'll be rewarded if you, instead of getting all frustrated by the big arguments everybody has, um, just learn to be at peace with the Bible. If the Bible says it, it's true. Even if it doesn't make sense to me or to math or even logic, I'm willing to say, well, throw logic out the window. If the Bible claims it, I'm gonna believe it. That's always worked out really well uh, in my lifetime, having that position. But be that as it may, Jesus died once for all to them that are sanctified. I love that. Um, and notice what it says, by, by one offering, he's perfected. Are you perfect? Well, if you've been called and sanctified, there is a perfection that you can claim and it's not practical perfection. You're still a work in progress. Amen? Amen. Amen. But positionally in Christ Jesus, you are declared perfect. That, that, there's three perfections in the Bible. Positional perfection, where you're saved by God's grace. Jesus does away with your sins, so you're clean and you're washed and you're, and, and you're perfect. That's what it says right here, you're sanctified, so you're made perfect because of him, positionally. Practically, we're a work in progress. There's scriptures that defend that. And then there's another third one, promised perfection, where when we see him, we will be what? Like him. Uh, there's gonna be an ultimate promised perfection when we get to heaven that's gonna be both practical and positional, which is really cool. But then speaking of that being perfect, fast forward to verse 17. It says, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. When Jesus died, it wasn't just um, you know, atonement sweeping under the rug, but it was atonement like it's talked about there uh, where it says, and I will, verse four, take away 
their sins. And what does he do? He puts the sins as far as the east is from the west, and I will remember your sins no more. That's how he can declare you perfect. See, what the Old Testament law could not do, Jesus dying on the cross did that. That's how you get to heaven. When you and I get to heaven, I just wonder if some of us are gonna be standing before the gates of heaven if, you know, if we do that. Um, and, uh, and then the Lord will say unto you, if you're sanctified and saved by God's grace, he'll say, enter in thou good and faithful servant. He'll be thinking, are you talking to me? Because man, Lord, what about the sins back in 2023 in January when I did that horrible sin? And the Lord will say, what are you talking about? I remember your sins no more. I put them as far as the east is from the west. And I love verse 17 for that. Aren't you glad God is able to forget stuff? You and I, you know, we might for, try to forgive each other. And you know, if you really wrong me badly and you come and say, Brad, I'm really sorry. I'll say, I'll forgive you. But every time I see you in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, I love that person. But you're, you, you wronged me that one time. I might just be a little careful with you from now on. Oh, I forgive you. You see, that's just human nature. We can't forget. I wish we could but the Lord is able to forgive and forget. I remember your sins no more. And then here's where we get to the crux of the matter. Um, in verses 18, all the way through, through really 25. But, but um, what is this? This is where we talk about the veil and what's the significance of that? Because uh, we're talking about salvation, sins forgiven, sanctification, all this stuff that's very doctrinal and very important. But let's read on in verse 18. It says, now where remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin. Now, this, this, what this means, this is just King James' way of saying, when your sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus, you don't need to make offering anymore for sins. That's why you don't get up in the morning, brush your tooth, sacrifice a lamb, and then go to work. You don't do that because, because you don't have to. Why? There's no more, you don't need to make offering because Jesus died once for all, the lamb that died for the sins of the whole world. Verse 19, because of that, verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us, now this is where we have the scriptural salad, three lettuce statements. He says in verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke to love and good works. Um, the, the let us statements. But I love the first one so much. It says, let us, because of all that stuff that we just read, with a true heart, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Can I just mark a couple words? Enter into the holiest with boldness. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Does full assurance sound good? Have you ever been fully sure of something? Um, have you ever been fully sure of something only to find out that you were wrong? <laughs> that's, that's the problem for humanity. But if God is saying you can do this with full assurance, that means you got nothing to worry about. Let us draw near with a true heart, honestly before the Lord, true heart with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Have you ever done sinful dastardly deeds on Saturday night only to make you not wanna to go to church on Sunday morning? Well, it's because you've sinned and you feel guilty and Satan, who's the accuser of the brethren and the sister, 
day and night. He just says, you're an evil, wicked sinner. But guess what? Here's what I've learned to do over the years with that, because you know we all sin, like Paul, who's the, probably the best of us. Paul the apostle said, I don't do the things I do wanna do. I do the things I don't wanna do. I, in my flesh, there dwells no good thing, but I think... Jesus Christ, what does he thank Jesus Christ for? That even though he was a sinner who struggled with sin, Paul was the guy who knew that he could enter boldly, even though he was a sinner. Oh, with full assurance of faith to enter in, not because of who he is, but because of what Jesus did. You, you can come to church on Sunday morning, even if you did mess up on Saturday night. And while Satan's whispering in your ear, you can agree with your adversary and say, yes, I am a, a sinner and I have blown it but praise be to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins once for all sin. Past, present, future, Jesus took care of my sins. Thus, I am declared perfect in Christ, positionally in Jesus. So I can come and worship, and even though I'm messed up and made a mistake. Now, that's, that's good news. I hope you all come to church with your heart sprinkled of an evil conscience, with full assurance of faith, and enter into the, the idea is the holy of holies. How do we enter into the holiest, the holy of holies, verse 19? Boldly, how do we do that? By a new and living way, not an old and dead way where the priest would die with a rope around his leg. Um, where did the rope idea come from? It came from Leviticus when it says, if the priest goes in there and he does it wrong, he dies. And so the legend probably came from, well, how do you get the dead body out of there? Like who's, I'm not going in to get him. You go in and get him. I'm not going in. Like who goes in to get, so that's probably why the rope idea came. I don't know if it was true, probably not. Well, let's wait till the next day of atonement. We'll pick him out then. Uh, send the priest in. Uh, that's, that's, that's a little bit of a tough situation there. But you and I, it's not an old and dead way. We get to enter into the holiest God's kabod, the presence. Why? It tells us right here, we can enter in by a new and living way. Verse 20, for um, it says, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. The veil. Going into the holy of holies through the veil, the, the, the curtain. How did we do that? Through his flesh. Now what's that? This is starting to connect some dots. Are you seeing it? Remember at the last supper when Jesus took the bread and he tore the bread and he said, um, you know, do this in remembrance of me. That tearing of the body of Christ is, is an image of the tearing of that veil so that you and I no longer are outside of God's presence, but you and I as New Testament believers, we don't have to wait for the day of atonement to have the presence of God in our lives. God's presence is right there and you can enter in boldly anytime you want with full assurance of faith. And you don't have to go through some ritual of lighting the candles and burning the incense and eating the table of showbread and hopefully go through with the right clothes and all that stuff. That's the old and dead way. You and I enter freely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And you don't have to have a fancy church or temple or chapel. Your, your car can be a sanctuary, even if it is a Prius. <laughs> I like to give Prius people hard to... Prius. Yeah, you can make your Prius a sanctuary where you're driving down the freeway and people in Prius, they're quieter, so you can probably pray anyway. Um, but you can pray and you're entering in the Holy of Holies. This is, remember that old song in the 70s or 80s, I guess, take me past the outer courts in the holy place and take me into the Holy of Holies. And, and I love that song. We did that song and, you know, it's great. But I think it made sort of this idea that we have to somehow work our way into God's presence. Uh, that starts to take away from the actual truth. Those days are gone. You and I get to just enter into his holiness, uh, the holiness 
by a new and living way with boldness, with full assurance of faith. Um, by the way, I think sometimes worship people think, well, we, have to, we can't really worship unless everything's just right. Uh, we're gonna set the mood so that we can enter in and hopefully the song's just really, really worshipful and, and we'll turn down the lights and we'll have smoke kind of rolling off the stage to kind of imply the Holy Spirit moving and, and, and we're gonna do this and that. And people get into this thing where we gotta kind of work our way through stuff. No, I, I understand just spending time worshiping the Lord is wonderful. I'm not knocking that. But if you think you have to go through, well, I can't worship the Lord until I'm at church, until the guitars are there and the smoke is coming off the stage and I can't really worship until that happens. No, you can in your closet at home, make that the Holy of Holies where you can just go onto your knees and seek the Lord and the kabod, which is represented by the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus, John 14, John 16 said, it's good that I'm gonna leave you. Well, how can that be good? Because I'm gonna spend, send my spirit to comfort you and I'm gonna fill my church with the spirit and the spirit's gonna come upon the church in the way that the Holy of Holies had the kabod over the Ark of the Covenant, the church is gonna have the spirit in their tabernacle, their tent, their, their, their temple. Don't, what, don't you know? Paul said your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit. So no longer the Holy of Holies of the temple. But as it turns out, Christ can fill your life with his presence in such a powerful way. So we have access to the Father, no longer once a year. This is such good news. Your sins are not separating you from God. Um, you know, um, I love the simplicity of this. Um, and, uh, you know, what do we need to do to have our sins forgiven? It's Jesus. It's such an important thing. I like the kindergarten Sunday school class teacher that was trying to teach her class, you know, and she asked the kids, children, you know, what do we need to do before we can expect forgiveness of sin? One little boy raised his hand. He said, first, you gotta sin. <laughs> he was right. He's, he's not wrong. Um, but what do we need to do? That question's good before we can expect forgiveness. And well, actually, it's nothing we do. It's what he did on the cross, dying, shedding his blood so that we will be forgiven. Um, the, if there is something I guess that we should do, it's this. It's the one thing the Bible tells us. Um, if you wanna accept Jesus, it's, it's really quite simple. You repent. That means change your mind. Change direction, change your mind. Repentance is like a military term, about face. To do an about face. So in your life, you can be sinning it up, living godless, but when you repent and say, okay, I realize I've sinned against the Lord and I'm gonna change my mind about that. And then to simply accept and receive that free gift where Jesus died once for all your sins, past, present, future. And if you accept that and receive that, guess what? You're one of the chosen. God chose you and you're saved by his grace through faith. Well, wait a minute, Brett. You're just giving people a license to sin. This is that cheap grace. Oh, remember, is cheap grace a good thing to say? No, because grace was not cheap. It was the most costly thing. We talked about this last week. It was the most expensive thing in the whole world. God became a man and died and paid the price for our sins. And try to add to that payment with your own good deeds. What a joke. God's grace is free, but it was not cheap. Well, Brett, you're giving people a license to just be saved by grace and then go off and keep sinning. No, if you've been around Athey Creek for very long, do we teach and preach against sinful behavior? All the time. And we do it, some people criticize us. Brett, you're always talking about sin. Talk about the positive. Talk about what we're for, not what we're against. Well, I, the reason I talk about what we're against a lot is because Jesus did the same thing. 
Don't be duped by these, you know, mamby-pamby pastors that are going around saying, well, we're just going to talk about things we're for, and the victory, you're victorious, and happy, 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 and us just cotton candy. It's really beautiful that we're saved by grace, and there's so much good and fun things to talk about. Yes, I love talking about that stuff. But in order to understand that, you got to understand that, man, God's wrath is real. Hell is real. Um, some, some come to church because they feel guilty, so they feel like they have a responsibility to sort of try to gain favor by coming back to church. That, that's just a legalistic mentality. We don't come to church because of our responsibility to get right with God. We come to church in response to what he's already done, dying on the cross for all my sins, past, present, and future. We're responding to his grace and his goodness. Um, you know, you can come to church no matter what you did the past week, good, bad, or ugly. And you can still come and, and enter in boldly. See, Brett, that's what I'm talking about. You're, you're, you're giving people a license to sin. Well, here, here's why we're not doing that. Why should you and why should I not sin? Have you ever thought about that? Um, and some people say, well, sin is bad. So you're just not supposed to do it. Well, remember, that's why I always say that same thing over and over. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. You're, you get, people get it all backwards. The reason you shouldn't sin is not because, well, it's just bad and God says don't do it. The reason God actually gives us the reasons why we shouldn't sin. Um, let me give you three and then we'll wrap it up. Number one, sin messes up our lives. That's why God says, don't do sinful things because it hurts you. Oh, this is such a huge thing in our culture. Our culture loves to sin and we do it with pride and we march down the street and celebrate our sin. And we're saying, we can do whatever we want. We're free to do whatever we want. Well, as it turns out, you are free to do it. You have a free will and you can do whatever you want. The question is, does it mess you up? We live in a culture that doesn't, it's such a strange culture because we're so afraid of everything in our culture nowadays. Have you noticed the fear that's in our culture? It's embarrassing. I'm so embarrassed for our culture now. We're afraid of everything. But as it turns out, the things we should be afraid of, we're not. For example, sinful stuff, it just, you know, it's, it's just gonna mess you up. Sinful stuff messes up our lives. It's, it's the natural consequence. Things that God forbids, it's because it hurts you. You parents know what this is like. And if only people would use parental logic, it is interesting that parents are trying to take back school curriculum saying, we know what's best for our kids. Because nobody knows what's best for your kids than a parent. When you love those little rascals, uh, those little scab-eaten, you know, I mean, diaper pooping. You love them like nobody else. And, and for that reason, you, you sometimes are the hard, the hard person. Um, junior wants to go play out on I-5 and throw the Frisbee with their friends on I-5 freeway. Well, as a parent, you say, you're not gonna do that. Well, why? Because you'll get run over by a truck. You will die. So I'm not, I forbid you. Well, that's just legalistic and you're just trying to stop all the fun. Well, no right-minded thinking person would, would, would agree with that. Uh, a loving parent's not gonna let their kids do something that could possibly harm or kill them. Isn't it interesting that we live in a culture that basically says, yeah, whatever to that. And, and, and what's, what's more is I, I, my heart breaks because you wanna know who I think cares more about transgendered people than anybody else? And I know that some people are gonna laugh at this and mock it, but it's just simply true. I believe Christians care more about transgender people 
than the curriculum, the secular world, the president of the United States. The president of the United States has the transgender person in the overall office celebrating something that's totally opposite of what the Bible teaches. And, and while God created the male and female, X, Y, biology supports my argument. Um, the Bible for sure supports the argument. But one of the most unloving things you can do is to say, go play on the freeway. And, and, and Brett, well, we're not talking about playing the freeway. Well, you want know the odds of death are probably higher with transgenderism. Did you know the, that there's no group in the world more suicidal than transgender people? And, and, and you know, people say, well, Brett, it's because of people like you that are saying transgenderism is wrong. Um, that's why they're, they're suicidal. Well, why weren't they committing suicide? Why didn't we see these levels of suicide before we supported transgenderism? The suicide levels are increasing exponentially as we cram transgenderism down the throat of our kids in schools and colleges and universities and all this stuff. You know, uh, there's an article, you can look it up if you want, World Net Daily article. The real reason transgender groomers are targeting America's children by David Kuplian. But, um, you know, in August of this last summer, Twitter recently banned the term groomer as being an anti-LGBT uh, sort of word. However, groomer, the word groomer is precisely the right term to describe those involving today, involved today's widespread phenomena of gender activists, indoctrinating, seducing, and flat out recruiting children into identifying as transgender. This is already leading to countless children having taken powerful and dangerous drugs undergoing double mastectomies and chemical or surgical castration, resulting tragically, but not surprisingly, in astronomical levels of suicides. Um, heartbreaking. Where is psychology in this? Isn't it weird? If you just look at this, psychology is totally being silent on this issue. Um, and the reason why is most psychology understands, well, even as ancient times ago, like two years ago, we used to call it uh, gender dysphoria. It was a, it was an, it was a um, you know, problem. But then psychology is like, wait a minute, we're, we're supposed to support this now? And you'll notice there's this, there's death, deathly silent, uh, uh, nothing's coming from psychology, but it's all these people with political views that are cramming it down people's throats. Who cares about the transgender person? It's the same person that will say, we love you enough to say, we want you not playing in the freeway. We, we want you to be happy and healthy. And there's a better way than saying, you know, what transgender is, God made me wrong. He actually made me wrong. And if I feel a certain way and I don't like it, I'm gonna change uh, what actually God made me as. But when you realize it's not about you and it's about submitting to God and choosing to be happy, even if your situation is difficult and trusting the Lord um, and getting help from people that actually love you. And I'm gonna tell you, if you're a transgender person and you are saying, I, I need help, man, the church of Jesus Christ, we're gonna give you, it, it, we're not gonna just give you what you wanna hear, but we are gonna sh share with you, here's what the Bible says, and God does care about you and loves you and wants you to be blessed and saved and head for heaven. The world's cramming this down our throats. And so even I found one article that was halfway honest, Yahoo Life, believe it or not. The suicide rate among transgender teens is shockingly high. And by the way, there's a real uh, lack of studies on this. They're purposefully leaving this out of their studies because the numbers are so crazy level high. Um, 
It's, it's shocking. I could read those studies. But sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. It'll mess you up. Transgenderism is just one of those sins we're promoting that the world is suffering brutally for. Christians are the most loving. I, I'll make that argument uh, to the day I die. Number two, sin comes with a price tag. Well, Brad, isn't that what you just talked about? No, it's different. When you sin, do you realize the wages of sin is death? Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Don't forget, if you continually practice sin, that means you're not repentant. That doesn't, that means you're not really saved. Um, well, how do you know who's saved? I don't. Um, that's, if you've repented of your sins, confessed with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus, then the Bible says you're saved. But whether you've done that or not, that's between you and God. But if you've not been saved, the wages of sin is death. And it's not just death, but eternal death in hell. Oh, Brett, you believe in hell, a place where you're thrown? Yes, <laughs> Revelation 20, 15 says, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's, the Bible is so literal and clear on this one. So reasons not to sin. Sin messes you up, messes your life up. Sin comes with a price tag, eternal death and hell. But thirdly, sin separates us from God. And we've already covered that today. Um, Isaiah 59, one and two. Sin separates you from God. So the way to, to reconcile yourself to God is to go through only one way. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Because without Jesus's blood being shed on your behalf, you do not have access to God. And you cannot be saved apart from Jesus Christ. As we close this morning, two, two people I wanna to talk to. First, if you're a Christian and you let the enemy, Satan, whisper you, you're a sinner and, let's, and, and you, you feel like your conscience is sprinkled with evilness and you walk into church feeling guilty and like I'm not good enough or whatever, can I remind you, you're not good enough and, and agree with Satan. Um, yeah, I'm not good enough, but good news. Jesus died once for all so I can enter in boldly. Um, some of you need to maybe confess that to the Lord even right now. Would you bow your heads, please, as we close? And, and maybe for some of you, just to have a time, you and the Lord right now, to just confess, Lord, forgive me for not embracing that grace, the, the beautiful work that, were, that allows me to enter in boldly to the throne room of grace, to the Holy of Holies that you can enter in with full assurance of faith because of what Jesus did. Maybe you, re, you resist that because you think you're not good enough. Just remember you're not good enough, but he was good enough. And he did it all so that you have his grace in your life. What a joyful thing. Just accept that again as an old timer Christian maybe wrestles with a bit of a legalistic mentality. I gotta do more and I gotta be more and I gotta measure up. Well, you never will until we go to heaven. So let's accept the gift right now. And then the second group of people before we go is if you're not saved, if you're not a Christian, this is a good time to do it. Um, you know, when, when we ask you to become a Christian, some people think, well, I have to become like you, Pastor Brett. God forbid. Um, you know, we're the wretched, miserable sinners that have been saved by God's grace. I'm not asking you to follow me. I'm asking you to follow Jesus. And if you wanna accept Christ, not joining a church, that's not what saves you, but I'm gonna ask that you follow Jesus Christ and accept him. And if that's what you want, you do what the Bible says, you repent of your sins, change your mind. Doesn't mean you're gonna be, repentance doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect. It means you're gonna be perfectly forgiven as you 
just reject anything that's contrary to God. You'll still stumble, you'll still make mistakes, but you've changed your mind about those things. That's what repentance is. And then Romans 10, verse nine and 10, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, it says you will be saved. If you want that, I'd like to pray that with you. I'm not gonna embarrass you, but right where you're sitting, if that's you, would you just acknowledge that between you, me, and the Lord? With everybody else's heads bowed, would you raise up your hand right now and say, Brett, that's me. I wanna accept Christ. I wanna confess him as my savior. Let me just look around for a second. Cool, way back there, I see you. Good. Let me just look around for a minute. Don't wanna miss anybody. Awesome. Cool. Anybody else? Great. I'm gonna pray this prayer. And those of you that have lifted your hand, um, just pray this from your heart to the Lord. He'll hear your prayer. And the Bible says you're saved because of what he did, not what you do. It's such a great thing. Let's accept that. I'm gonna ask the whole church to pray this out loud, supporting these couple people. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins that he rose up from the grave and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.